0: All right, so let's get started. This is Torah studies. The objective, of course, as always, is to explore the Torah portion of the week, to explore the themes that we are living in, um, you know, the timely themes. And this week, I think we have a really magical class because it combines the Torah portion as well as um, as well as the upcoming holiday of Shavuot. So this this is going to be. Please, got a. Uh, A tremendous class. Okay, so what we're going to do now is speak about a theme that is at the heart of a lot of tension that's going on right now in the world. And the theme that I want to speak about is how do we balance individuality with equality? How do we balance these two values? You know, on the one hand, we speak about equality and how we're all in this together. Whatever this is, I don't only mean like what's going on right now with coronavirus, but right. We're all together. There's oneness, unity, equality. Yep, all is one. E pluribus unum, from many into one. Melting pot. Beautiful. Equality. What was the, uh, the, the motto of the French Revolution? I think it was Liberté. Egalite, fraternite, something like that. Did I get that right? Sandrine, help me out. Yes. Very good. fraternite, egalite. There you go. There we go. Okay, so, you know, on, on the one hand, we speak about equality as being this very important thing. Equality, we're all the same. But here's the question. What do we do with the distinctions that you and I have? In other words, what do we do with the fact that not everyone is the same? We talk about equality, right? What does the Declaration of Independence say? that all men are created equal. That the question is, is that really the case? What about the distinctions between us? So we're going to look at our Torah portion, Bamidbar. We're going to look at the, which is the, the opening portion of the Book of Numbers. We're going to look at the holiday of Shavuot, which is coming up uh, in a week, uh, from, a week from tomorrow. So just, just about a week's time. And we're going to try to glean insight as to what does Judaism say about this seeming tension between equality and individuality. Are we all the same? Or are we, are we all different? Should we celebrate our differences? Should we celebrate our sameness? And if it's both, how do we pull off kind of um, uh, combining that, uh, you know, these two seemingly opposite qualities? I will say, it's a related topic, but not tonight's topic directly. In the world, we have a very big struggle and tension going on right now between the two values of individualism and collectivism. I I may do a pop up class on this next week, or in the, and when I say pop up class, like I may surprise and just announce a class, and those that that are around are around, and just do a class on this because. I feel like it's a really important topic. It's related to tonight's topic a little bit, but not directly tonight's topic. But let me tell you about this related topic. You know, somebody says, I need to go to work. And the government says, you can't. Yeah, it's not good for us. And you say, I got to go to work. That's not good for me not to go to work. I, I need the money. And the government says, you can't. How do you balance, right? The government says, the state says, again theoretically, all theoretical questions, you need to wear a mask. And the person says, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna wear a mask. The government says, you need to wear a seatbelt. The person says, I don't wanna wear a seatbelt. The government says, if you ride a motorcycle, you need to wear a helmet. The individual says, I don't wanna wear a helmet, right? The government says, we're gonna hack into your iPhone if we suspect uh, you know, some monkey business. The person says, don't touch my iPhone. There's a struggle between what might be good for the individual and what might be good for the larger group. And the question is, how do we balance the interests of one against the other when they are mutually exclusive? Now, when when it all works out, no problem. If everyone's agreeing, if the individual and the collective are in agreement as to what should be done and what's you know, what a, what's, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, no problem. But what happens when the two parties, the individual and the larger collective group, have a difference of opinion? That's, that creates a problem. So whose interests win over the other? Okay, that's not necessarily exactly tonight's class, but tonight we're going to get into a, maybe a similar concept of how do we balance the 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 notion of respecting the individuality of, an indiv- of, of everybody with the value of equality. Equality, we're all the same, we're all together, we're all in this together. How do we balance the individual versus equality? Okay, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked all these questions because we're going to get into this topic. And again, I'm not getting into all of those things that I mentioned, but you're going to see a little bit um how this how this connects okay so the torah portion is bamidbar which by the way is the name same name as the fourth book of the torah bamidbar bamidbar means what does it mean unmute yourself if you know what it means or raise your hand and i'll unmute you i see ray going for it go for it ray in the desert in the desert not the dessert i need to mention dessert is the cheesecake For Shavuot, order your cheesecake kits, I mean your DIY Shavuot all-nighter kits. um, Desert. desert. Bamidbar is in the desert. The home and the setting for the 40 years of wandering. The Jews wandered for 40 years between the exodus and entering the land of of Israel. And the entire book of Bamidbar talks about the journeys through the desert. What's interesting is, What's interesting is that the Torah portion of Bamidbar, no matter what's going on, whether it's a leap year or a non-leap year, whether it's a blue moon, not a blue moon, whether it's a year of COVID-19 or not COVID-19, no matter what, Parashas Bamidbar, the opening portion of the book of Numbers, is always read on the Shabbat before, you guessed it, I already told you, the holiday of Shavuot. There's there's an intentional connection between the holiday of Shavuot and the Torah portion of Bamidbar. So the way our calendars work and the way the Torah portions work is that it's always synchronized. This Shabbat we read Bamidbar and next week, before Shabbat already, is... Shavuot, so what's the connection between Bamidbar in the desert, Shavuot, which is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah, what's going on here? By the way, you know how many years it is, 3,332 years since the Sinai experience, since the, uh, the Torah was given on Sané. So 3,332 years ago, the Torah was given on Sané, we celebrate it on Shavuot coming up uh, next Thursday night. And before that, we always have Bamidbar. Why? What's the connection? So our sages point out something extremely fascinating. That if you look at the Hebrew word Bamidbar, which means, as we know, in the desert, you find a similar similar language stated in preparation for the giving of the Torah. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna share my screen with you because I'm I'm a generous guy. So I'm gonna share my screen with you. And we're gonna explore this together. Let's look at some texts. Okay, take a look at, uh, let me just skip some pages here, boom. All right, here we go. Text number one, this is not Numbers, right? This is not the book of Numbers, our Torah portion. This is going back, Exodus chapter 19. All right, Ray, if you don't mind, please get us started right here. This is, I need to set this up. These are the verses that give us the, 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 the story pr- right prior to the giving of the Torah at Sinai on what we know as Shavuot. This is what happened. Torah says as follows. Take it away. The of Israel's departure from Egypt. On this day, they arrived in the desert of Sinai. They journeyed from Refedin, and they arrived in the desert of Sinai, <coughs> and they encamped in the desert. And Israel encamped there opposite the mouth. There you go. Thank you. So what do we see in this text? We see multiple times. I'm going to highlight it with my little uh, mouse over here. Desert. 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 I went out of order. Whatever. You're with me on this, right? Three times it uses the word Bamidbar or Midbar. It says Midbar. They came to Midbar Sinai, the Desert. Vayachnu midbar, They went into the desert. Right? Midbar Sinai. So three times he uses the word Midbar, which is desert. So, so what does this mean? It means that Torah is connected with Bamidbar, with a desert. So the portion that begins Bamidbar in the desert is appropriate to juxtapose near the holiday of Shavuot. As it says in the code of Jewish law, Donna, I'm unmuting you if you don't mind. Please. Oops, why can't I unmute you? It looks like you might be stuck. All right, Donna, if you can unmute yourself. You, all right. go. you got it, all right. Take take a read, please. Text number two. This is the Code of Jewish Law. The Torah portion of Bamad Bar is always read before the holiday of Shavuot. There we go, and that's what I mentioned before. Thank you, that's what I mentioned before. This... this Portion is always written for the holiday. There's a a juxtaposition, there's a connection between Bamidbar in the desert and the Torah being given at the same, by the way, the Hebrew word is Bamidbar Sinai. Our portion, our Torah portion begins by by talking about what happened Bamidbar Sinai in the Sinai desert. That's where the Torah was given in the same Sinai desert. So there's a connection between this week's Torah portion and the Sinai Desert. So we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Torah and the story of the giving of the Torah at Sinai to try to see which value is most important. Is it equality, which connotes sameness, melting pot, right? kind of overlooking the individual, or is the greatest quality individuality? Is the greatest quality the uniqueness of the individual. That is what we are going to explore using the texts that will follow. So, first text we're going to do as we really break open this discussion is Rashi's comment on, you know, let me go back up right here. Rashi explains the text that Ray read earlier, the second verse right over here. I'm highlighting the Hebrew, Vayichan sham Yisrael Neged HaHar, which is translated, as we read before, and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. They got to the Sinai Desert, and Israel encamped there opposite the mountain. Take a look at what Rashi, the primary Torah commentary, says on this one. Sandrine, are you available to, are you, you're, you're good to read? All right. If you don't, Uh, there you go. Text number three, please. And Israel encamped there as one man with one earth, but also the encampment where we complain and we strive. Take a look at this. Thank you. Take a look at this. Rashi says, why does the Torah use the word Vayichan, which means grammatically, and he camped? In other words, it's the singular, not they camped. If it, if it meant, and they camped, if, if the Jewish people were being called in the plural Yisrael, the nation of Israel as a collective, it should have said grammatically, Vayachanu. It only works in the Hebrew. I'm, just, I'm telling you some Hebrew grammar here. It says Vayichan, which means the singular, he camped. Like the one person camped, as opposed to Vayachanu, which is many people camped. Why are the Jewish people here referred to as one person? Rashi says, Israel encamped there. What does it mean? As one man with one heart. However, <clears throat> that was unique to that encampment in preparation for the giving of the Torah. The Jews were unified, but with all the other encampments, there were complaints and there was strife. Yeah, typical Jewish stuff. I'm kidding. You know, I don't want to talk bad about, uh, about the tribe. But look, you know, the reality is there's always complaints, yeah, there's always complaints kvetching. It's a national pastime. We like to kvetch. Oh, you know, it's too hot. It's too cold. It's too soft. It's too hot. Everything. There's always a complaint about something. But with this encampment, when it came to the Jewish people setting up camp next to Mount Sinai in preparation to receive the Torah at Sinai 3,332 years ago, va'yichan sham Yisrael Negadahar. The Jewish people camped there as one man, with one heart, like one person, totally unified. This is considered to be a good thing. In case you're wondering, this is considered to be a good thing. There was achdus, or achdut. There was unity, there was oneness. Which implies here an equality. Everyone was on the same page. If, again, if you look at the language of Rashi, one man with one heart. that sameness. So this kind of champions the notion of equality, fierce equality. In other words, if we're trying to figure out which is the greater quality, is it, sorry, not equality, which is the greater quality? Equality or individualism or individuality, right? So it seems like in preparation for the giving of the Torah, there was a wonderful experience where the Jews were all together, and that seems to be a virtue. So maybe equality is a virtue. We're going to look at some other, uh, some other texts that seem to indicate the same thing. All right, any questions so far before we continue? Questions, 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 nope. Okay, again, as always, feel free to put questions in the chat box. Feel free to unmute yourself at any point in time to ask away. Okay, take a look at text number four. This is coming from the Amida. Every single Amida service at the end of the Amida, There's a paragraph called Sim Shalom. Whether it's a weekday, whether it's a Shabbat, whether it's a holiday, whether it's Yom Kippur, it doesn't make a difference. You always have this paragraph called Sim Shalom. And it means it's a blessing. It's a request for peace. We ask God to bless us. Okay. Um, Let's ask Alex. Alex, are you up to reading this one? Right here, bestow peace? Okay, great. Bestow, Bestow peace. Goodness and blessing, life, graciousness, kindness, and mercy upon us and upon all your people, Israel. Bless us, our Father, all of us as one, with the light of your confidence. For by the light of your countenance, you gave us, Lord, our God, the Torah of life and loving kindness, righteousness, blessing, mercy, life, and peace. May it be favorable in your eyes to bless your people, Israel, at all times and at every moment with your peace. Okay, thank you. So that is, that's how that last paragraph, well, second to last paragraph of the Amidah goes in the English. And clearly, the, the, the content of the request is a request for peace. We're asking God to bless us with peace, goodness, blessing, life, graciousness, kindness, etc. But the main thing that's, uh, that's mentioned here is peace. And that's how it ends. It's all about shalom. But if you notice... We ask that God bless us. Bless us, our Father, referring to God. All of us as one. Barchenu, <speaking in Hebrew> avinu, bless us, our Father. Kulanu, <speaking in Hebrew> all of us. Ke <speaking in Hebrew> as one. Once again, it's like the notion of one person with one heart. It's again the same idea that we're dealing with the value of equality. When we're all together, then we're asking God for the blessing. Because when we're all individuals... Maybe we're not worthy of the blessing, so we ask that God bless us number one to be to have to have this type of connection, and then that's going to be the vessel to hold the divine blessing. So clearly, this paragraph once again emphasizes the notion of equality, all of us as one let's take a, Let's take a look at another text. This is related to the last one. The Mishnah says as follows, let's see who is. Next on my board, Dr. Maxi. can you please read text number five, please? Yes. The Holy One, blessed be He, found no vessel that could contain blessing for Israel, save that of peace. As it is stated, God will give strength unto His people. God will bless His people with peace. Thank you. So what, what the mission is saying is not just that God is blessing with peace. In other words, that the, the blessing is a blessing of peace. But God will bless His people when they have peace, when they are with peace. Then God will bless His people. Does that make sense? You see, you see what the mission is saying. The mission is saying is that the vessel that holds the blessing is peace. And what is peace? Peace means, as we saw before, barchenu avinu kulanu. <laughs> Ke bless us all together as one. Peace means oneness. Again, we have another verse, we have another, um, another source here in Jewish thought that emphasizes the notion of equality, that emphasizes the notion of togetherness, not individuality. It's not saying everyone should be doing their own thing as they see fit, as they wish to their strengths. No, it's saying that everyone should be as one. This sounds very, to me, this sounds very melting pot-esque. You know what happens in a melting pot, right? You take a bunch of different things and you turn up the temperature really high and everything melts together into what? One substance. Ke'echad, <laughs> as one. It's beautiful. It's equality. It's great. It's fantastic. And we said, Lo matzah, kli machzik elaha the greatest vessel to contain the divine blessing is peace, cohesiveness, unity. Imagine, imagine, you have a bowl, a beautiful bowl made of the finest china, and you drop the bowl on the ground, and the bowl shatters into 10 pieces or breaks into 10 pieces. And imagine, you take your bowl, 10 pieces, you're holding it makeshift in your hand, you take it over to a pot of soup and somebody pours, somebody takes the ladle and pours the soup into your bowl that's comprised of the different pieces. Now what's going to happen to your hands? Yeah? It's going to get burnt. It's, gonna get burnt. it's not going to work out. Why? Because you need a vessel. You need a vessel that has its full integrity that, that's, that's completely whole. What is the kli? That is machzik bracha. What is the vessel that's holding the blessing? Togetherness. The vessel has to be together. This is the idea of oneness amongst our people. This is the notion of getting along with each other, but more than getting along, being as one. That's like the Holy Grail, not to mix metaphors, that's the Holy Grail of of oneness is the notion of, uh, sorry, of togetherness, is the notion of this oneness. Make sense? Yes? Thumbs up if we're making sense so far? So we have now several sources that speak to the maila, the quality, the advantage of togetherness. Okay, fantastic. Let's take a look at text number six. From a mystical source, this is from the book of Tanya. This is absolutely classic. Tanya, chapter 32. Look at the chapter 32. 32, of course, the numerology of 32 is Lamed Bet. Lamed is 30, Bet is 2. Lamed Bet together spells the word Lev, which is heart. Lev, like heart. The heart of Tanya is chapter 32. And what does chapter 32 speak about? Chapter 32 speaks about the mitzvah, to love your fellow as yourself. And in chapter 32, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad and the author of Tanya gives very specific advice. He says the only way, we're going to read this inside in a minute, but let me just tell it to you outside. The only way to truly love someone like yourself is if you are looking at their soul and not at their body. Because if you're looking at their body, if you're looking at your body and their body Two different bodies. So how are you ever going to love someone else like yourself? You're you, and they're them, and you're not the same. Love them like you. What, it, what does that even mean? How can I love that person like me? I'm not them. They're not me. That's it. We're different people. Love them like me. Bubba Mises. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Unless, the author of says, unless you're looking not at the body, which is different, Everyone's bodies are different. There's the physical dimension of the person is different. Not just the body, but the, all the physical components are different. But what is the same? If you look at the soul, the neshama of the other person, your soul and my soul come from the same place. Our bodies might be different, but our souls, the souls are the same. Take a look at text number six. Um, Steve, if you don't mind. Steve, I just unmuted you. You're good to go. Text. Number six. Please take it away. It is possible inasmuch as our souls are all paired one with the other with one parent. Thus all Jews are called siblings by virtue of the root of their soul in one God. They, it is the, only the bodies that are distinct. Thank you. Look at what the Abdu Rebbe says. He starts up by saying it is possible. What is possible? To love your fellow as yourself. It's not just you know, pie in the sky, something that's not realistic. No, it's possible, he says. How? Because our souls are all compatible with each other. Yeah, this is a very literal translation. Our souls are all paired one with the other. I don't know what paired with one another means. Our souls are compatible. Our souls are equal. Why? Because we all come from the same place. Virtue of, by virtue of the root of the soul and the one God. Now, of course, the Alta Rebbe is speaking as a Jewish leader to the Jewish community. So of course he puts in, he's talking to the Jews, but the truth is this applies to everybody. Everybody has a soul, everyone's soul is coming from the same place, coming from God. So what is the implication here? How does a person truly love the other like themselves if they stop thinking about material, physical things? As long as you're stuck in the physical perception of things, then you're going to see the differences between you and the other. If you look through the lens of your soul, if you look at yourself, if your self-image is more soul, less body, then you're going to look at the other person, hopefully the same way, more soul, less body. And if you're looking from soul to soul, it's the same stuff. It's the same DNA. The body, different DNA, different fingerprints, different DNA, different. So can I love them as myself? Probably not. But if I'm looking at the soul, now we're talking. So what's the implication here? The implication here is, again, equality. We all have the same soul. Our souls have the same DNA. We come from the same parent. We're literally siblings. That sounds like equality. So we have several texts over here from all sorts of Jewish sources, from the story of the giving of the Torah at Sané when the Jews encamped at the mountain, ki echad like one man with one heart. Equality. To the blessing in the Amida, the end of the Amida that talks about God blessing us with peace and as one, which brings out the notion of equality. From the Mishnah that talks about there's no better vessel for the blessing than peace. To the... Did I, did, no, that was that, yeah. To the Tanya. To the book of Tanya where he says that the only way to fulfill the mitzvah of loving your fellows yourself is if you look at your soul and their soul and realize that your souls are the same because they're coming from the same source. They basically essentially share the same DNA. It's the same stuff. My soul, your soul, it's the same. I'll tell you a great story. Along these lines of equality. How we're all, we're all in this together. We're all the same. So there was a chassid... Passed away not that long ago, a few years ago. His name was Reb Mendel Futterfass. Mendel Futterfass. that was his name. He grew up in Russia and he was part of the underground Chabad network of yeshivot and schools and educational centers and mikvot, mikvahs and uh, opportunities for wet Jewish weddings and bris, milah, circumcision. All oh, The whole underground network which went right against everything the communists wanted. And eventually... Uh, Remendel Futafas was arrested and sentenced, I think, to a decade or even more of harsh labor in Siberia. Many people never made it out of Siberia. You know, in Siberia, it's not like it was, it's not like you had heating and, and amenities. It's not like a vacation. It wasn't an Alaskan cruise. Let's put it that way. Siberia was Siberia back in the day. I'm sure today you can get a hotel in Siberia. I haven't looked this up, so I could be wrong. But I'm sure today you can do exotic Siberia and you know have fun and spend a lot of money. Siberia then was a punishment, it was exile, it was harsh. Most people didn't make it out. That was it. Most people didn't make it out. Reb Mendel was incredible because he always kept a very positive way about him. He was always positive. He he, personally, he lived in addition to the Siberia, he lived through many, many, many uh, um, tragedies. He lost children due to illness and other things like literally, like a few of his children passed away at a very young age, he experienced tremendous hardship that no one should ever experience. He never lost a sense of positivity and joy and hopefulness. An incredible individual, he made it out of Siberia, made it out of Russia, reconnected with his family that had moved while he was in Siberia. His family moved to England. He eventually moved to England with them and would travel. You know, for the rest of his life, he would travel from England to Israel, Israel to America, teaching and fabranging. He was a guy that was always going to uplift the communities and and, and bring good spirit and tell great stories. And he told so many stories of his time at Siberia. I've shared in the classes many of these stories. The tightrope walk story, the circus story that he told, the um, countless stories. But I wanna share one story. The story goes that he was on a plane, on an airplane. This is obviously before 9-11, so there was a little bit more freedom that you could do, things you could do on an airplane. I'm sure you all remember what airplanes were like before 9-11, it was kinda of like a bus. You got on, you could walk around, There was Hamish. Now it's very, very strict. It's very, you know, you're pretty much like handcuffed to your seat. You're pretty much under uh, lock and key, but back then it was a little bit more Hamish. So what does he do? He goes around. He has his filling with him, you know, the phylacteries, and he's go, walking up and down the aisle, scouting out for Jews, you know, looking for Jews. How do you look for Jews? You gotta have Judar. You know, you gotta you got to be able to look and notice, and, and, and you can always ask, and if you're wrong, you say, Well, nice to meet you, and uh, I'm still looking for Jews. He's looking for men to do the myths of rapping to fill in with on this flight. Maybe it was a, a transcontinental flight from England to the, to the United States. I think that's what the story was. But whatever it was, he was on a flight, and he sees this guy, he sees a fellow, and he looks Jewish. He says, You're Jewish? Yeah. So he's struggling. How does he explain tefillin to this guy? You know, uh, the guy doesn't look like he's, you know, he, it's possible that he doesn't know what tefillin are, so he's thinking how to explain the tefillin. So this is what he said. He said, Me Jewish, you Jewish, me tefillin, you tefillin. That's all he said. He said, Me Jewish, you Jewish, meat fillin', you tefillin. That was it. And the guy said, Okay. <laughs> If it's good for you, it's good for me. Let's wrap Tefillin. And that was it. They did the mitzvah together. He was a guy from Russia with love. He didn't, know, he didn't have command of the English language. He knew Russian, Yiddish, Hebrew. That was it. Eventually, he picked up a little bit more, more English along his journeys. But that was it. So what happens? He did the mitzvah with his fellow. How? By evoking the equality. Me Jewish, you Jewish. Me Tefillin, you Tefillin. That's it equality, we're all the same. Yeah, we may look different. We have different life experiences, different backgrounds, different education, but all of that is body stuff. All of that is external stuff. At the core, peel away all the layers, all the layers, keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. At the core of your heart and at the core of my heart, when I say heart, I mean soul, right? At the core of your soul, the core of my soul, it's the same, equality. Okay, let's uh, let's keep on going. Because if we look further in Jewish thought, we notice the opposite quality, which is... How come it's not working suddenly? Here we go. I'm highlighting it right here. Tribalism and individuality. Tribalism and individuality is a very different energy. There's the energy of equality where we look at everybody as the same. We don't look at the externals. We don't look at that which makes us distinctive. On the contrary, we look at what is aligned or equal amongst us. And that seems to be a value in Judaism. Equality, sameness, togetherness, oneness. That seems to be propped up as a good thing. But so is tribalism and so is individuality. Where do we see this? Well, let's start with something a little bit horrific. Sodom. Remember Sodom, all the way in the book of Genesis, all the way back in Genesis, Sodom is destroyed. You know why? They were not kind people. They were very, very mean people. But you know what it says in the in the midrash? It says that what was their wickedness? It was trying to make everyone the same, trying to force, trying to force um, equality. David, are you up to reading? Okay, hold on one second. Um, I'm trying to unmute you. You may need to activate your... Okay, you got it. Take it away. When a pauper would enter Sodom and thereafter wished to leave, they would immediately lay him down in a short bed. The portion of his legs that would extend over the edge of the bed would be cut off. If the person was short, they would lie him down in a long bed, hold him down, and stretch him out until his body filled the bed. They would do this until he died. That's what the major says. That's what they were doing in Sodom. What was Sodom? What was life like in Sodom before the destruction? Before you know all, uh, all, all uh, everything went uh, went kaput. Yeah. What was it like? This was what what life was like. They didn't like any gas. And what happened when people did come into Sodom? They would cut the legs or stretch the legs until the person died. What does it mean? What does it mean? What, what were they doing? What it means is sometimes, I want, I want to understand this metaphorically. What they did then, torture, is one thing. But you know what it means for you and I? How often do we do this? How often do we take people and make them conform? to the image that we have that they should fit. How often do we do this to children in school? How often do parents do this to children in their own homes that say, you know what, you need to fit this bed. I, I, of course, I'm talking non literal I'm talking metaphorically. Your legs are too long. We need to cut it off. You have other interests that are not uh, these interests. We have to cut off those interests. Trafe. You can't have those interests. Cut it off. Sometimes the parents say, or the educators say, or the community says, your legs are too short. Sometimes we say, you don't have enough interest in what we're interested in, so we're going to stretch your legs. But all of this kills the other. It destroys the spirit, the individuality of the other, trying to make someone fit into your box, into your bed is homicidal. It's destructive. It snuffs out the life, the vibrancy, the individuality of the other person. But we have all sorts of wonderful intentions. No, we have the perfect size bed, and so it's only only good for you if we cut off your legs or if we stretch your legs. Because we know best. We have the bed, We've measured the perfect bed, and you need to conform. You need to fit into this bed. When David read this text before, I imagine some of you were thinking, what a far-fetched scenario. It's ridiculous. Did this actually ever happen? Who did this? How barbaric did it happen? Did it not happen? Is it hyperbole? Is it babamisis? But I'm hoping what you're getting as I'm talking is that it's not only did it happen in Sodom, Does it happen in 2020 in our communities, in our families, that we don't accept someone's individuality or individual desires or individual um, interests? That we make people or we feel the need to try to make people fit a certain box. We stifle their individuality. We stifle their creativity. We stifle their uniqueness all in the name of we have the right bed and you're going to fit in this by hook or by crook. So yeah, we can point to Sodom and call it an outlier and call it, you know, wow, barbaric and woof. thank God. It's, thank God Sodom's not around. But is it not around? Ask yourself, is Sodom not around? Do we not seek, do schools not seek to make children learn a certain way, think a certain way, behave a certain way? And you might say, well, what, 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 what else? Today we know what else. There's differentiated learning. There's different ways to educate. There's playing up the interests of the child, of the individual, recognizing the individual as an individual, working with their strengths and their weaknesses. We've progressed in pedagogy. It's not a one-size-fits-all, one-bed-fits-all. But this entire story of Sodom and the modern application highlights the dangers of equality. The danger of making everyone fit together. Because who said everyone's alike? What about individuality? Is what I'm saying making sense? Yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Okay. Let's keep on going. More texts about the value of individuality. Oh, this is a long one. I'm going to paraphrase this one. I don't think we have time to read the whole thing. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this just because it's really long. But this comes from our Torah portion, Ba'midbar. we're back, back to our Torah portion this week. So the Torah talks about how the Jewish people would camp in the desert. It wasn't haphazard. They camped in formation, very organized. The, in the center was the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and around it, northeast, southwest, around the tabernacle, There were tribes, three on the north, three at the north, three at the east, three at the south, and three at the west. Three, 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 three. Do the math and you'll find, you'll fact check me. Twelve tribes. Twelve tribes, three, 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 three. Which ones? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to paraphrase this. We're not going to read the whole thing. Okay, I'm going to highlight and paraphrase. At the east was Judah. At the south, Reuben. At the west, Ephraim, and at the north was Dan. By the way, it wasn't just those four tribes. Those were the leading tribes of the three tribes. So I'll give you the full, the full count. To the east, Yehuda, Yisacher, and Zebulun. To the south, Ruvain, Shimon, and Gad. To the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Binyamin. To the north, Dun, Usher, and Naphtali. That was it. That's how they encamped. And in the middle, there was the Mishka and the tabernacle. Around the tabernacle, there were the Levites. And around the Levites, the 12 tribes in formation. What does that evoke? It evokes the notion of individuality. They didn't all mix together. It wasn't all one, Am Yisrael, everyone together, camping without boundaries. Yeah, no order, no seder, no division. They had very... Strict divisions, tribal divisions, grouping divisions by the three tribes that were aligned with each other. There were basically, I don't know, it's not a great word to use. Maybe it's, not a, it's an imprecise word to, to use in this context. There were cliques. There were groups. Tribal groups. Tribal affiliations. It wasn't all one big chalent or one big uh, melting pot. That's not how it worked. Take a look at this next text. This is a really beautiful text. Take a look at this one. Uh, Let's see. Adina Malka. First of all, it's great to see you. Second of all, if you can, please read. I just unmuted you. You're ready to go. I'm going to make it a little bit larger. Okay, go ahead. When God appeared to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, 22,000 angels accompanied him, all under the banner of different flags. When the Jews saw that they were grouped under different flags, they were... Roused with the desire for flags, as well as stating, We wish we could make flags like that. God exclaimed, You want flags? By my life, your request will be fulfilled. Immediately, God informed the Jewish people of the command and told Moses to instruct the Jewish people to make flags as they wished. Listen to this. The Jews wanted flags. God says, "You want flags? I'll give you flags." What's the flags? Who's like so going crazy over flags? It wasn't the flags. We're just calling it flags. It wasn't about the actual flag. It's not like waving something. What's the what's the deeper meaning? Here we have here we have uh, the Ma'arva Shemesh that gives a beautiful explanation. I'm going to read this one. Take a listen. You're going to love this. This is like this is sweet like honey. The Jews saw the angels under their flags. What does that mean? Namely, that no angel intruded into her colleague's lane, by the way, that's a, that's a very loose translation, colleague's lane. It didn't use lane in the, uh, Michal Epstein wasn't using the word lane, but that's a modern Michal, Michael, the angel Michael does not intrude into Gabriel's lane. Rather, every angel stays in his lane or her lane and perceives godliness accordingly. The Jews wish for the same thing, stating, if only we would do the same thing, if only no one would push another to try and reach past the appropriate level for them. God said to Moses, do it for them. In other words, inasmuch since you wanted flags, namely that no one Intrude into the next person's lane, rather, every person should receive what's appropriate to their level of readiness. Do it. The Levites will be in one group, the rest of the Jews in another. Each one of the Israelites in their own group, some in the east, others in the south. Everyone will associate with their own likeness. For the tribes that camped under one flag were associated with one another. Basically, we have here once again emphasized the value of individuality and not equality. Not trying to make everyone fit into the same box. It's good to have uniqueness. With the angels, there are different angels Michal, Gabriel, Raphael, other angels, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, all these wonderful things. Maybe even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, that was Raphael, Donatello. Okay, whatever. Okay, so you have different angels. Each one has its focus, each one has its mission, each one has its reality. And the Jewish people said, when they saw this revelation at Sinai, they saw the angels, they were able to perceive the angels. They said, wow, we want this also, we want to have our distinction. We're not all the same. And God said, perfect. God said to Moses, give them that ability to be unique and to hang out with their groups because not everyone is the same. And if you try to put everyone together, it doesn't work. So now we have a real tension. Now we have a real quandary. What is ideal? What is the ideal state? Is the ideal state equality or individuality? What is the goal? Take a look at this. I'm going to read some more. Proverbs, one of the most famous Jewish teachings about education. This is what I meant meant before when I talked about modern education and what I meant to say before is that finally modern educators, pedagogy has caught up to what King King, sorry, King Solomon wrote this um, thousands of years ago. <laughs> he says, train a child according to his or her way. And then, even when he or she grows old, the person will not turn away from it. If you try to make a child be who they're not, they're not gonna take it with them. If you want to educate in a way that even as they get older, it's gonna stick with them, then you have to differentiate the education. You have to teach someone, educate someone, involve them in learning as they are not as you are. Teaching is not in position It's about education, and that's not imposition. And so we're left with a very big divide between two elements, two values, that both on their own seem wonderful, but when we think about it, might seem mutually exclusive. There's a value of encamping by the mountain, by Mount Sinai, like one man with one heart. The entire nation, two, three million strong, all as one. There's a value in not looking at different bodies, but looking at the oneness of soul. There's a value in melting pots and equality, all of those wonderful things. That's a value. At the same time, we have another value. There's the value of individuality. There's the value of the individual spirit, the uniqueness of the individual, not the sameness, the individuality. The danger of trying to make everyone fit together trying to melt everyone down into one sameness. That's dangerous. So which is it? And how do we balance both? Which is better, equality or individuality? Which is the greater quality? Or maybe there's a way to balance them both. So tonight, I want to share with you the following insight. Judaism teaches us unequivocally The value of both of these qualities, of both of these values. There's value in inequality and there's value in individuality. There's a value in the collective spirit. And there's a value in the individual spirit. And they both can coexist. That is the big idea for tonight. They can both coexist with nuance. Let me explain. We've misunderstood the term equality for for way too long. And the whole notion of a melting pot is indicative of what's wrong with our understanding of equality. You see, equality, at least from a Jewish understanding, doesn't mean sameness. Equality does not mean sameness. Take different metals, take different colors, different crayons, whatever it is, and melt them together. Apply a lot of heat and they're all going to melt into one substance, to one liquid. That's what a melting pot is, but that's not what equality is from a Jewish understanding. That's missing the point. That's sameness, but sameness is not the same and does not equal equality. What is true equality? Equality is as follows. I'm going to give you an example of equality. The the Jewish, the deeper Jewish understanding of equality. Imagine a person. Take, for example, a human being who has their one human being, but they possess different body parts. So let's go through them. There's a head. And the head has different parts to it. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth. Right? The quarantine beard. Although I had this before quarantine. Right? So different parts of the body. Sorry, different parts of the head. And then, oh, forget the head. You have other things. You have a torso. And you have arms and hands. And you have legs and... And, and feet and toes, all of these wonderful things. I'll ask you a question. Is the body one? Yeah. So does that mean that all the parts of the body are the same? No. The reason why the body works is because the head is, because the head is a head and the foot is a foot. If the foot becomes a head, then we're in trouble. If the foot starts thinking, then you're toast. You know why? You would never step into something hot. <laughs> yeah, you're overthinking your foot's like, nope, not doing it. Thank God we have feet that just take charge. Even when our heads are a little scared, the feet says, the foot says, that's it. We're doing it. Full march ahead. Thank God for the head, because the feet would get us in trouble otherwise. Thank God we have a head to think about where we're going and where we should be going. But the biggest avla, the biggest tragedy would be if every part of the body wanted to be exactly like the other part. If the head wanted to be a foot, if the foot wanted to be the head, if the hands wanted to be the head... You would have absolute and abject chaos. The body works together because the parts stay unique and individual. And because they're unique and individual, that's why they work together. Why is a symphony beautiful? Not because all of the instruments are the same. It's because in the symphony, you have all of the instruments playing something else. And because they play their own individual tune or their, their individual sound in conjunction with the other one that's playing an individual and unique sound, together it creates harmony and beauty. If all you heard was the same exact sound repeated 50 times, it would be quite boring. And that's not what we call a symphony. A symphony is born of diversity. Working together. A body is diverse limbs working together. Art. Different colors. Imagine if the artist... Imagine if Leonardo da Vinci... He's the one who created the Mona Lisa, correct? Yes? Yeah. Anybody see the Mona Lisa? Actually see it? Okay. Imagine if Leonardo da Vinci... Da Vinci, imagine if, that's my Italian attempt, imagine if he took all of the paint that you see now on the Mona Lisa canvas before he put it on the canvas, mixed it all together, all the colors together, making a brown, a deep brown color, and then just swabbed it all over the canvas. Yeah, Mona Lisa or no Mona Lisa? No, Mona Lisa. Why? The beauty is in the individuality. You see, we sometimes think that what is our nation, what's the greatest thing that we can bring to the table? It's, when I say our nation, United States of America, it's, you know what, if we're all together, equality, melting pot, melting pot is a disaster. Melting pot is not what we want. You want to take away someone's individuality? They need to sell out. They need to give in. They need to give up in order to fit in. That's not honoring the individual. That's not loving the other as yourself. That's trying to make them like you. And that is not equality. Because again, in Judaism, equality does not mean the same thing as sameness. Sameness is sameness. That's not what we're looking for. That's not the quality that we strive for. We strive for equality. What is equality? Equality means individuality that is honored. I'm different than you. You're different than me. And I love it. Because I know that the only way things are going to get done around here is if I do my thing and you do your thing. And I honor you and I love you because of what you uniquely bring to the table. I know the author Abba says that the only way to love your fellow is when you see their soul. But you know what else the author ever writes? I'm glad you asked. Take a look at this text right here. Such a beautiful text. I'm going to read it to you. Again, he's talking to the Jewish community, which is why he he references it as such, but it applies, of course, to everybody on planet Earth. Every Jew is part of one large body. For every Jew possesses a certain quality that no one else does, and together they all complement each other. I cannot say it any better than that. We all have unique qualities, Working together, we complement each other. It turns out that everyone possesses a certain quality that places them at an advantage over the next person. And in that respect, the next person needs them. Take the human body, for example. What, you think I come up with my own examples? I got it from the Altar Rebbe. Take the human body, for example, with its respective parts. The head all the way down to the feet. Yes, the feet are the lowest part physically and the head is far superior intellectually yet in a certain respect the feet have the distinction that the head needs them to go anywhere what's more the feet literally uphold the entire body including the head it turns out that the head is incomplete without the feet the same is true the same is true with the body of the jewish people it turns out that even for the person who thinks in their arrogance that they are ahead Relative to their counterpart, I'm the smart guy, I'm the intellectual, I'm the scholar. And that other guy, peh, not a scholar. The reality is, even if, even if you think that, the reality is that they are lacking without the other person. There's a hole in their soul that the other person fills. Realizing that ought to humiliate, not humiliate, I don't like that word. Ought to humble, you gotta, this is not a good translation. We're not looking to humiliate anybody. Realizing that ought to humble and Make them subdue, contrite, or respectful in the face of their counterpart. We, we got to tweak this translation over here, those two words. But, the, but hopefully the intent is coming through loud and clear. What does it mean to have equality? Does it Does not mean to change the other person or discount their individuality? Your only value is if you're the same as me. That's not what equality means. Equality means that you're equally as valuable as I am. I am valuable. I am infinitely valuable because God put me here for a very important role. And guess what? You're also infinitely valuable. That's what equality is. I'm valuable and you have no less value than I do. I was created by God and you're created by God. We still have different purposes. We still have different ways that we think. We still have unique tools and unique gifts. We still have a unique mission collectively we share the same mission, making the world a better place, bring Mashiach. Collectively, yeah, it's the same. But that's not what equality is. Equality is not sameness. Equality is honoring distinction and valuing the difference that the other person has. And so in the final analysis, is there tension between equality and individualism? Only if you mistranslate equality. (laughs) Only if you have a misconceived notion of what equality is. If equality means sameness, then yeah, it's going to be a conflict. But if equality means that no matter what, I value you, I honor you, I respect you, I see your gift, if that's what equality means, that I don't give myself any greater quality than I give you, you are just as amazing as I am. If that's what equality means, then I can still honor your difference. I don't need to make you like me. I can keep you as you are and keep me as I am. So, as we find ourselves in the Torah portion of Bamidbar, which evokes the desert, and as we find ourselves in the week before Shavuot, the holiday of the giving of the Torah, let's remember this. We all stood at Sinai as one, like one man with one heart, but like one man is one man with diversity, because no man, no human being is just a blob of oneness. There's a head and there's a torso and there are arms and legs and feet, all diverse body parts. So too, we stood at Sinai as one with our diversity. We never lost our diversity. The Jewish people asked for different tribes, different flags, different encampments, hanging out with their friends, with their groups. And that's okay. We're allowed to find like-minded people. We're allowed to be unique and be distinctive. But no matter how distinct and unique we are, we have to remember, we have to remember that the other person, with their unique ways, with their unique ways of thinking, and, 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 and all, all their uniqueness. Let's remember that they are equally as valuable as we are. And with this, we can truly prepare for the giving of the Torah once again. Every single year, our tradition tells us, God, once again, asks us, Do you want the Torah? And every year, we should proclaim loudly and together in unison, but in our own way, Yes, na'asev Ishma, we're ready to accept, we're ready to do, Tell us what is asked of us. 3,332 years ago, we got the Torah. This year, once again, we're going to receive the Torah Thursday, next Friday, Thursday night Friday, and into Shabbat. Let's remember our, our mandate to not only turn to God and say yes to God, and say yes to God's proposal for Torah, but to look at the other person, and say, yes, I honor you, and I value you, and I I don't seek to make you like me. I know that you're different, and that's why I value you, because you're different. This takes us to the end of today's class, but there's one more story that I want to share, and I know I'm I'm pressing my luck with time here, but I want to share one more story. A story that highlights the importance of recognizing individuality. There was once a wealthy man who hired a coach driver. This is before Uber. Who hired a coach a, a, a wagon driver to take him into a town for the weekend. Both men were Jewish and observed their Shabbat. And they arrived at this new town on Friday afternoon, and each went to their respective lodgings, the wealthy man to a nice hotel and the coachman, the coach driver to a simple motel. They both got ready for Shabbat and they both walked to the synagogue to the same synagogue. And on the way to the synagogue, the wealthy man encounters a traveler who, who, whose wagon got stuck in the mud and asked for some help. So the wealthy man, who's wearing a beautiful suit, kind of you know, pulled up his sleeves and rolled up his, his pant legs and uh, tried to help schlep out the wagon. But he didn't know what he was doing. He's a wealthy man. He's a businessman. He's not a wagon driver. He doesn't know about leverage. He doesn't know about... Uh, I don't know either. So he didn't, doesn't know about uh, how to get the wagons out of the mud, and he en- ends up not really helping but getting muddy and actually getting a little bit injured. Meanwhile, the, uh, the wagon driver has an uneventful walk to synagogue where he meets individuals that were poor individuals, beggars, who are looking for a place to eat a Shabbat meal. He invites them over, 10 beggars, to his, his, uh, his motel room for after-services for the Shabbat dinner. Nope. So Shabbat services in the synagogue go as, as normal. And after the meal, sorry, after the services, the wealthy man goes, hobbles, limps, you know, tattered and bruised back to his beautiful hotel room with his lavish meal that he prepared for himself, that he brought for himself with no guests. And the poor man, sorry, the, uh, the wagon driver, took ten beggars to his meager um, place with meager food, and, and they all ended up pretty much uh, not satisfied from the meal. After they passed away, the story, by the way, was told by the previous Rebbe in the name of the outer Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. Just so you know, this is a very holy story. After they passed away, the two souls came above to the heavenly court, and the heavenly court said they missed out on their mission. The wealthy man needs to come back down to earth and invite people over for Shabbat, and the wagon driver needs to come back down to earth to help a wagon driver, to help a wagon out of the mud. And this becomes, this becomes the message for you and I. The message in life is, don't try to do someone else's avodah. Don't try to live someone else's life. Everyone's got their own individual mission. The wagon driver, when the wealthy man encountered the wagon that was stuck in the mud, he should have found his friend, the wagon driver, and had him pull it out. And then he would have got to shul and invited the, 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 the people that needed a meal over to his place for a delicious meal. The problem is sometimes we don't respect our own individuality and the other's individuality, and we start crossing things over, and we get confused, and confusion is not good. So who's better, the wagon driver or the wealthy man? What do you mean better? They're both equally valuable. And they both have their own individual missions. Don't get the two confused. They're both equally valuable, but they don't have the same mission. The wagon driver is not not meant to be the philanthropist, and the philanthropist is not meant to schlep wagons out of the mud. So, does this mean we're always destined to be who we are and never grow? Of course not. But what it means is equality is not the same as sameness. Let's let's recognize our gifts. Let's recognize the other's gifts, and let's utilize them to make the world a better place with love and respect for the other who is equally as valuable and equally as imperative to fulfill the mission. Make sense? Yes? All right. At this point, we're officially formally concluded, even with this story, and uh, you can feel free to unmute yourself to ask any questions, to share any thoughts or any